So over the last couple of weeks, ooh, as a church family, um, we've been exploring the book of Ecclesiastes um, and seeing what it has to say to us in the very complex times that we live in. Um, so I'm going to invite Melinda up in just a moment, but I'm just going to do the Bible reading first. So the Bible reading is Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful, as it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness, and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labour under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you are going, there is neither working, nor planning, nor knowledge, nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favour to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Good morning. Nice cheery Bible reading for this morning. <laughs> I hope that just got you all excited. You're all going to die. Time and chance is going to happen to all of us. Uh, it doesn't matter what you do. because you know, it's, it's a bit of a depressing book on first glance, Ecclesiastes, and so it's been interesting to spend uh, these four weeks or the last, last couple and the, the next two in this book. And yet, it has something to say to us. And in fact, there are so many resonances we're hearing with our particular time and place as Mark said a couple of weeks ago our cultural moment this book seems to speak really strongly into and it's been fascinating as I've spent some time in these three chapters we're looking at this morning so that was chapter nine that Alyssa read but we're looking at eight nine and ten and in those three chapters there are so many resonances that I've seen in so many different parts of our world it's it's kind of interesting and it's got me thinking 
are people quoting Ecclesiastes without realising they're quoting Ecclesiastes? <laughs> or is Ecclesiastes just like so influential that it's kind of embedded in our culture without us realising? I don't know what's going on, but I've started to hear it everywhere. Um, as I said, it's a really challenging book that can seem very dark at first glance. But what it does do is invite us into the questions and the tensions and the struggles of life. And that's what seems really appropriate for us at the moment. We've often said that... Um, there's no use pretending that everything is all, you know, sunshine and roses when it's not. But I think if the last couple of years have taught us anything, it's that. Um, there's no use pretending when the world feels like it's falling apart. When you look around and see injustice and brokenness, when we're faced with a pandemic, when we're faced with sickness and sinfulness, it's appropriate to know that God's word invites us to wrestle with that reality rather than just papers over it and says, just just so we find, just you know, move along, nothing to see here. This book is about a search for meaning in a world of complexity and challenge. And I love that um, both Mark and Josh over the last couple of weeks have invited us into the wrestle that this book has. So two weeks ago, Mark looked at the first six chapters of the book and really set up the context of how Ecclesiastes work and works. And then last week, Josh, to his chagrin, was given just one chapter um, to sit in, in chapter seven. But they both talked about this idea of wrestling. And I love that word wrestling. Now, I don't love wrestling, like the idea of wrestling, watching Greco-Roman wrestling. <laughs> but the word to wrestle is actually the name that is given to the people of God in the Old Testament. So Israel means the one who wrestles with God. And so Jacob is the individual man. His name is Jacob, which actually means the deceiver. And then he has this encounter with God where they wrestle all night long. And God says, I'm going to change your name and you will now be called the one who wrestles with God. And from that moment on, he also walks with a limp because no one wrestles with God and comes out of it unscathed. But then that name is given to the whole nation and the whole community. And I wonder whether we've lost something of that. But you imagine the entire Old Testament period, this nation that God has called to be his people, to live in relationship with him, to make him known to the world, goes through every moment of that knowing that their name, their identity is the ones who wrestle with God. Why on earth would we expect the Old Testament to be a simple, straightforward, linear book? when the invitation is to be the people who wrestle with God. And I wonder if there's something of that in being a Christian, a follower of Jesus. It's not quite the same language, wrestlers with God, followers of Jesus. And yet even following Jesus isn't a simple linear do what I do kind of thing. You might hear follow and think of that old kids game, follow the leader. And it's just, you know, you just repeat what the person in front of you is doing. You just mimic them. But if you look at what Jesus is saying to his disciples in their context, Following Jesus means actually walking along the road with him, conversing with him, engaging with him, debating with him, watching him, figuring out what he's doing, spending half the time, the disciples who are following him in the New Testament, going, what on earth is this about? And in fact, even arguing with him. Surely it can't be what you're saying it is. And there's something in that back and forth engagement that for me captures something of this idea of wrestling with God. And so being a follower of Jesus is not an invitation to a life that's just sunshine and roses, tick the boxes, you know, just now I know exactly what to do. It's an invitation to a relationship that comes with tension and questions and engagement and wrestle. So as I said, today 
Uh, We're sitting in chapters 8 to 10 of Ecclesiastes with the goal of kind of how do we find peace in a world that seems unjust. And these three chapters, 8, 9 and 10 in the book of Ecclesiastes, seem to have a bit of a a chiastic structure. That's a a technical term that uh, biblical scholars and and literary scholars use, but basically just means that the the centre is kind of highlighted because what what it starts and ends with kind of line up. So the best example of a chiasm in the Old Testament is actually the book of Lamentations, where the first and the last chapters have the same number of verses and then the second and the fourth chapters and then the third chapter in the middle is kind of on its own. So that's what a chiasm is. It's kind of, and it's very common throughout the Old Testament. So it doesn't surprise me that this seems to work that way, that these three chapters kind of start and end the same way and then the second part is similar to the second last part and then you get this bit in the middle, the bit that Alyssa read that kind of seems to sit all on its own. So what do I mean by that? So this, these three chapters are bookended with basically what seem like Proverbs. So Mark said to us two weeks ago, you know, you've got to contrast the book of Ecclesiastes with the book of Proverbs. They're both wisdom literature, but they're different types of wisdom. Proverbs is that kind of more uh, life advice. It is a bit straightforward. Is a bit. This is what I've experienced. This is what seems like good advice and wisdom to pass on, whereas Ecclesiastes is a lot darker. And yet here, Ecclesiastes brings into it these Proverbs. So you get sayings like, obey the king, but don't hurry to be in his presence. And you've got to figure out, okay, what does that mean? And in what world does that apply? It's a good idea to do what you know, is required of me and obey the law and um, do what the government asks. And yet at the same time, don't, you know, don't be, be too quick to think that that's the only way of seeing things. Uh, and then through to at the end of chapter 10, things like, through laughter the rafters sag because of idle hands the house leaks. Again, you've got to stop and think when you hear a proverb. What does that mean and how does that apply um, to my life? The life basically saying in a joyful house and a merry house is one that's going to be full, you know, fuller and, and um, one where people are lazy and nothing's going to get done. I don't know. These are the kind of like everyday sayings that we find at the beginning and the end of these chapters. Then, after we're introduced with some proverbs, we get some observations of the teacher, the one who is speaking the words of the whole book of Ecclesiastes, this main character, his observations on life. And same, just before you get to the set of Proverbs in chapter 10, you get another set of observations. And two kinds of observations in both places, both the beginning in chapter 8 into 9 and then in, in chapter 10. There are observations that he makes about the injustices of the world. He looks around and he sees things like people lording it over others, people using their positions of power and opportunity to actually push other people down rather than make things good for other people, the injustice of that. Um, He talks about seeing the wicked getting what the righteous deserve and the righteous getting what the wicked deserve. That is, people do the wrong thing and they seem to get rewarded for it and people do the right thing and they seem to get punished for it and that just all seems unjust. He says, that's what I see when I look around the world. I don't know if you can relate to that. don't know if you've ever experienced that. I'm pretty sure that most kids could say they've seen that in their lives where it just isn't fair. So he has observations about injustice. And then he has some observations about wisdom itself. Observations uh, that wisdom is actually more valuable than power or money. And yet people don't value it. Wisdom, he says, is the thing that it can actually make a difference and yet people don't see it. And yet at the same time, then earlier in in chapter 8, he talks about the fact that wisdom actually is fully out of reach. That no matter how wise you are and no matter how much time you spend pondering and thinking and wondering about the mysteries of the world, you'll never actually figure it all out. Touch it's a pretty depressing book. (laughs) So he has these observations about injustice and about wisdom. And then in the centre, in chapter 9, is this kind of conclusion 
So again, it seems weird that he says in conclusion in the middle, but that's a very Hebrew structure. He says, in conclusion, basically, everybody dies. That's a nice cheery conclusion for you. Everybody dies. Nobody knows when they're going to die. So you might as well make the most of all the days of your meaningless little life. Excellent. But as I said, reading through that, it was fascinating to me how many echoes of these chapters I have heard in various places in our own time and place. There's a really common saying, I'm assuming you've heard it said before, where there's life, there's hope. Did you know that that's a quote from the book of Ecclesiastes? I'm not sure that most people who say that, say that saying, where there's life, there's hope, while there's still life, there's hope, realise that they're quoting Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Or how about the fact that he talks about justice needing to be swift because if justice is not swift, it won't act as a deterrent to other people. So essentially what he's saying is if somebody commits a crime and you don't punish them, then other people think, will think that they can commit that crime and get away with it. That's the foundational principle of our criminal justice system. 3,000 years later, our whole criminal justice system is partially built. There's a few other principles at work as well, but one of them is deterrence. We punish people for crimes because we want everybody else to know that you shouldn't commit crimes because this is what will happen to you. Do we realise that we're acting out what Ecclesiastes has taught us, the wisdom of a book like this? And then even more specifically, there was a viral clip, a clip that went viral recently, and how many people have seen it, of Stephen Colbert being interviewed by Dua Lipa. How many people have seen that clip? Yeah, only a few of us. So it's worth having a look at. It's just like a three-minute clip. So Stephen Colbert, comedian who hosts the Late Show, Tonight Show, one of, I don't never know which one's which. I don't, you know, tend to watch them. I just watch the viral clips. Um, but, um, but he's one of those kind of comedians who's also can be quite serious and quite deep. Um, but usually he's interviewing someone and he has Dua Lipa, who's a singer, on his show and she interviews him. She's got a podcast, they're talking about her podcast and she turns the tables on him and she asks him a question. And it's a fascinating little clip. She asks him, you're a Christian, you're a person of faith. How does your faith and your comedy overlap and does one win out over the other? So she asks him to talk about his faith and his comedy and he gives this really fascinating little two-minute answer where he basically talks about the fact that in the end faith will win out because we're all going to die, Ecclesiastes, right? So, you know, we're all mortal. Um, but comedy for him is about engaging in the struggle not to give in to respond to evil with evil but actually to laugh and to find joy in the face of evil. And he talks about how some of his movies are the ones that are actually where there is joy and sadness and, in fact, joy in the sadness. Uh, and this, you know, you enjoy your life that you've got, but be aware that you are going to die and live with the awareness of your mortality. It's a much better clip than I'm explaining it. I thought about actually showing it to you today, but I just thought I'll mention it and encourage you to go away and have a look at it because it reminds me so much of what the writer of Ecclesiastes says here. It's exactly the same two key points. Basically, be aware that you're going to die. Don't live with the pretense that you're not mortal, but also enjoy life. Find the good, find the humour, find the laughter and the joy, even in the face of evil, because that is what will keep you from despair and that was what will keep you from giving in to injustice and wickedness. It's Ecclesiastes. <laughs> That whole clip is Ecclesiastes and it went viral, people all around the world and there was some debate about it. Um, Colbert is a Catholic so there were certain Christians who were saying, oh, well, you know, he's a Catholic 
he's a, a person of faith and he is thinking through the challenges of being a person of faith in the moment that we find ourselves living in and how to do that well and with joy and with good humour. highly recommend it to you. The other clip that's probably a little more controversial that I couldn't help but think of as I read these passages in Ecclesiastes and then I went and looked at the transcript of and compared to these chapters of Ecclesiastes and went oh my goodness does he realize that he is quoting Ecclesiastes is another clip that went viral a few years ago it's a lot longer it's a speech given by Australian comedian Tim Minchin at a graduation ceremony in Western Australia how many people have seen that one yeah a few more so he gave a speech called Nine Life Lessons to graduate. So people who are graduating from university gave them this speech, Nine Life Lessons. And Tim Minchin, atheist, you know, probably would be horrified to know that he's actually quoting the Bible. Um, I don't know, he's, he certainly has some woven into a lot of his comedy. I think he's certainly got an awareness of Christianity, even though he has chosen to reject it. Um, but everything he says, each of his nine life lessons, actually can be found in the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> it's really interesting. He talks about the meaningless of life. And the absurdity of thinking that we can find meaning. He talks about the fact that we will all soon be dead. And then he says, his advice to these students is, therefore, this meaningless little life of yours is an amazing opportunity. <laughs> Fill it. Fill it with love and sex and joy and food and wine and climbing mountains. And he goes on to a rant about all kinds of things. And I'm like... This is Ecclesiastes. This is exactly what the preacher, the teacher in this book says. You've got to understand the reality that your life is going to come to an end. That in the grand scheme of things, it might feel meaningless. And yet it is an opportunity to embrace all that life has to offer. So both clips worth watching. Not necessarily saying that you should take every piece of advice that secular comedians give you, or particularly in the Tim Minchin case, but to watch two people wrestle in different ways with the big questions that the writer of Ecclesiastes wrestles with, and to consider how they do so in our cultural context, and how they resonate with and differ from what the Bible has to say. It's also interesting that both of them are comedians, and yet comedians who speak into the realities of the sadness and brokenness and evil of our world. And it makes me wonder if the teacher from Ecclesiastes was standing before us today, when we, whether he would actually be a comedian. It doesn't seem like a very funny book on first glance. And then the more you read it, the more you realise he is doing that kind of humour in the darkness kind of thing. And in fact, last year at the Fringe, the Adelaide Fringe, uh, there was a guy called Dave Davidson who had a show called The Preacher. It ended up being fully online because last year was last year. Um, but he had a show called The Preacher, which was a stand-up comedy routine where all he did was read the entire book of Ecclesiastes. True story. I didn't see it. I missed it because it went online. But I'm fascinated that he thought that that was doable. And I've read mixed reviews of it, whether it came across well or not. But it's a really interesting way to think about the book of Ecclesiastes, that kind of this is designed to draw you in and to get you engaged and to make you laugh and to make you question and to point out some of the absurdity and ridiculousness of humanity and yet get you to think about where you find meaning in that. So how do we listen well to the teacher? How do we join in his wrestle and hear God speak to us in and through these chapters of Ecclesiastes? And perhaps even better question, how does he point us towards Jesus? I want to give you a couple of examples and then really two key takeaways from these chapters. The examples are, of course, we can consider the wisdom of some of his proverbs. Like we do with the proverbs, the writer of Ecclesiastes is passing on to us some general life advice 
And the way that the Proverbs work is that we need to let them speak into our daily practices and say, how does this work out in my life? Is that a lesson that has something to say to me? Proverbs are not simplistic. They're not um, like words from above. They're not laws from God that say this is the only answer to the question. They are advice that people who've lived life before us are passing on to help us live life well. So just for one example, in, in chapter 9, the teacher says, the quiet words of the wise are to be heeded more than the shouts of a ruler of fools. The quiet words of the wise are to be heeded more than the shouts of a ruler of fools. How's that for a piece of life advice to reflect on and ponder? Sometimes it's better to speak quietly and gently, those words of wisdom, than to be shouting and be seen to be a fool. I certainly know as someone who uh, can talk a fair bit and often has the opportunity to talk up front, that's really challenging advice for me to think, when's the time and place to actually be quiet? When's the time and place to listen out for the quiet words of others? When's the time to look deeper than the obvious and ponder what might have been taken for granted? When you're sitting in a room and people are trying to make a group decision, is it the loudest voice that always wins out? Where's the opportunity to ask the person who hasn't spoken yet to give their quiet words of wisdom? It's just practical life advice. There's plenty of that in the book of Ecclesiastes that we can consider and take on. And you might want to read some of the other proverbs that he gives us in these chapters. They go on into chapter 11, which Mark will be looking at next week as well. Secondly, we can consider some of the wisdom of the teacher in terms of his observations. He, can, he shares with us what he sees happening in his world and we can ask, is that what we see happening in our world? And how do his observations speak into our time and place? The teacher invites us to be observers, to be people who pay attention and notice what is happening in the world around us and ask questions about it, ponder, wrestle, pray, bring it before God and say, what is happening here, God? What are you doing? And as I said before, he talks about justice. He has some observations about justice that I think are a great invitation for us. The world that we live in is an unjust place. If you pay any kind of attention, you can't escape that observation. Humanity without God leans towards evil, always. That's the reflection of the teacher, and I think it is a fair observation of the world in which we live. So why are we surprised when we see it? Why are we surprised when we experience it? This is the way the world is. There is no simple justice in this world. People don't get what they deserve. We don't live in a world of karma, much as people like to talk about it. <laughs> Every now and then we see it and people go, ah, karma, <laughs> they got what was coming to them. But mostly, the world doesn't work that simplistically. It's not tit for tat. It's far more complex than that. The proverbial sayings can help us be wise, but there are limits to that kind of thinking. And we need space for a larger framework that comes from our observations and being able to give not an explanation that ties it all up in a neat bow, but an observation that allows us to sit in the tensions and wrestle and pray with these realities. And of course, we can learn from his observations about wisdom that ultimately, no matter how wise we think we are, we can never think our way out of the complexities of this world. That's his, his conclusion is, I can never outthink God. I can never come up with all the answers myself. No matter how much I seek to understand everything there is to understand, it's above me. 
That's an interesting observation to put into our culture and our context today. Because I don't know about you, I feel like sometimes the invitation is, no, no, if you just work hard enough and try hard enough, you can understand it, you can figure it out. There's a humility in this kind of wisdom that says, I cannot think my way out of the realities of my world. I need to look outside myself. I want to step on Mark's toes because he's going to be looking at the last few chapters of the book next week. But spoiler alert, I mean, this is where Ecclesiastes goes. His ultimate conclusion is fear God and keep his commands because there is someone wiser than us. There is someone outside of us. The more time you spend reflecting, observing and considering the realities of the world, the more that you will be drawn to seek someone else. You will be drawn to cry out for a God who is wise beyond us. So what then do we find in our wrestling? We observe, along with the teacher, the realities of injustice and the limits of wisdom, the unfairness and the limitations of our world. I want to end, as I said, with this centre of this section of Ecclesiastes where they have these two key ideas that seem contradictory in some ways but need to be held in tension, need to be held together. And they are this. Number one, everybody dies. And number two, embrace life. Everybody dies, so embrace life. That might seem, you know, paradoxical. (laughs) You might think, well, if we're just going to focus on the fact we're all going to die, why don't we all just die? But the teacher's response to his own mortality is to see life as a gift and embrace it. So, everybody dies, he says. Our lives are not in our hands. All of us share a common destiny. It doesn't matter what you do, who you are, the death rate in our world, is hovering at around about 100%. There's just that one exception, (laughs) Jesus, like 2,000 years ago, but it's really a blip on the statistics. Every one of us is going to die. It seems like a really depressing thing to stand up here and tell you all this morning that you're going to die. But it's the one thing I'm absolutely sure of. I can't tell you what's going to happen in your life tomorrow. I can't tell you what your future is going to look like. I can't tell you anything else, but I can tell you this. You are going to die. What do you do with that reality? How do you live in light of that reality? It's not to try and depress you, but it's a simple truth of our lives that I think we too often try to block out or pretend isn't real. Doing a fair bit of Googling, you know, to see what other people have to say about this kind of thing. And there's this really interesting question that people ask, but only in a very limited set of circumstances. This question that people ask one another, how would you live or what would you do if you knew you were going to die. And it's almost like this kind of getting to know you game or like, you know, getting people to think about things in a different way. What would you do differently if you knew you were going to die? The problem with that question is, of course, we should all know that we are going to die, right? It shouldn't be a surprising question that says, oh, I've never thought about it that way before. Man, if I knew I was going to die, well, I'd do this and I'd do this and I'd do this. You know you are going to die. And yet we don't live our lives necessarily with that framework. Now, Obviously, a lot of people sharpen the question and say, well, what would you do differently if you knew we were going to die tomorrow? And how would that reshape the way that you'd spend today? Maybe that's a different way of thinking about it. But the invitation of the teacher is, what does it mean to be mortal? What does it mean to live cognizant or aware of your own mortality? How does that change the way you engage with the world? Do you know, Jesus, in his teachings, in his parables... And in his wisdom, often invoked the reality of death. 
He wasn't afraid to talk about death. Death didn't scare him. Numbers of his parables end with this question. Given that you know that you're going to die, and therefore you're going to have to look back on the choices you made, on whether you followed what God wanted you to do, on whether you gave to those who were in need, look at that in the light of eternity. How does that shape how you want then to have made the decisions you're making now and how do you live your life now in a way that will lead towards where you want to be in the end he's not afraid to talk about death it brings me back again to that clip of Stephen Colbert that really did um, like encourage me in a really weird way he says death is not defeat that's what faith is as a person of faith death is not defeat so why are we afraid to talk about the reality of death At the same time, to hold in tension with that stark, brutal reality that we're all going to die, the teacher therefore says, embrace life, enjoy it and get the most out of it you can. In chapter 9, he has this really fascinating phrase. He says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. That's actually a phrase that's found in a number of places throughout the Old Testament. It's a commission that's given to various people, including kings where they're told, use what's in front of you, grasp hold of the opportunities you've got, make the most of what it means to be alive. Now, that's a dangerous statement to make, particularly as a preacher. Just go and do anything. Just live however you want to live. And people might be sitting there going, but don't there some other bits of the Bible that talk about, you know, just wise decisions and actually, you know, it's righteous and... Yes. And yet there's an invitation that says, if you understand your mortality, if you understand that you are human, that you have been created by a God and that your life is fragile and fleeting, then making the most of your life will involve all those things that the Bible talks about of living rightly and righteously. That the invitation to embrace life is the same invitation that all those other parts of the scriptures say. That the Bible isn't trying to kind of kill your fun. (laughs) That Jesus isn't a killjoy. In fact, Jesus' invitation is, Life in abundance, life to the full. Embrace life, get the most out of life, live it in all its full wonder and joy and beauty and reality because life is a gift and life contains incredible gifts. Not the distractions the teacher would say, not money and power and pretense, but the joys of creation eating and drinking and walking on the sand, the joys of other people, relationships and love and intimacy and family and the joys of ourself, of work and participation and mission and contribution to what is happening around us. There's all kinds of writers throughout history who've talked about this, the simple pleasures of life, you know, stopping to smell the roses, all kinds of ways of saying the same thing. Your life is a gift. Your life is precious. Your life is fleeting. What are you going to do with that one meaningless life of yours? Jesus' invitation to us is to not be afraid of the truth and yet to allow that to drive us toward him, to embrace the life that he has to offer The reality of the book of Ecclesiastes, as Mark pointed out a couple of weeks ago, is that it was written well before Jesus. And it can only point towards and glimpse and hope and long for what is now our present reality. 
So we want to listen to the teacher in Ecclesiastes because his words are the words of God and they're an invitation to wrestle and to enter into all of the realities of the world in which we live and how God might be calling us to respond. And yet we want to read them in the light of a God who has come to us in human form in the person of Jesus and made known to us once and for all life in abundance Life to the full, life which involves enjoying all of creation and all of one another and all of ourselves and all of God is actually, Jesus reveals, life that goes on for eternity. So the twist to the tale perhaps that Jesus brings that maybe is the most hopeful news of all, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not going to (laughs) die. Yes, you are going to (laughs) die. but you're going to live forever. This invitation to this amazing thing called resurrection, which is life forevermore. Life after life after death, as N.T. Wright calls it, trying to find words to capture the reality, the mind-blowing kind of paradox-breaking, paradigm-breaking, sorry, truth of what Jesus has come to offer. I can only wonder what the teacher in Ecclesiastes would have thought if in the midst of his whole speech, observations, wisdom, passing on of the truths of life, he'd come face to face with King Jesus and said, oh, I thought I understood. And what I had to say, it's true. And yet there is a fuller truth that you have brought that changes everything. So I'll leave you with the invitation to wrestle to continue over this next week as we prepare to finish our series in Ecclesiastes next week, to not be afraid of the questions, the tensions, the observations of what is terrible and wrong and broken and hard and complex and difficult about the world that we find ourselves in. But I want to also leave you with a reminder of the way that King Jesus speaks into this. That as people of faith, as followers of Jesus... Death is not defeat. Death is not the end. In fact, this resurrection life is not just for the future, but it's for now. So let me pray. Jesus, this is a really complicated book that we're sitting in. uh, And I feel like I'm left with more questions than answers for what I've talked about this morning. And yet, that's your invitation to, in relationship with you, in prayer, in community, in faith, wrestle and ponder and observe and wonder and share and pass on advice and ask questions and listen for the quiet answers that we weren't expecting. So I pray that we as a church community and as individuals as we sit in this space, that we would hear you calling us in the wrestle, um, accept your invitation and um, not be afraid um, to ask those hard questions and to sit without knowing all the answers. But I also pray this morning that we would see you, Jesus, that in all things we would have um, the truths that we hold as, as human beings, as mortals in this life of life and death, just renewed and, and, and revealed and filled fuller by the reality of your presence, your resurrection and your invitation to resurrection life for us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.